0: The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, markets, media, creatives, careers. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: Careers have second acts. Like, you really want to be thinking about this. Probably what you're doing for most of your work life won't be what you do for all of it. So at some point, I just decided to take my own advice, I guess. The thing that crystallized it for me was a conversation I had with with one of my bosses who said to me, Your job is to produce the MVP, the minimum viable product.
0: Craig Matters, not long ago the top editor of perhaps the world's most well-known investing magazine, on U-turning from the big Manhattan-centric media life to reinvent as a public high school teacher who provides room and board to goats, heifers, and hens. Yes, I believe that all checks out, or most of it. Uh, Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast, to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. Follow, subscribe, and rate us at linkfulldradio.com. We are on all the social media channels at handle Full D Radio. Joining us from southeastern Vermont is Craig Matters. He is a teacher now in this second life. He teaches at the Springfield Public Schools for uh, disadvantaged students or some that might be behind but show exemplary promise. The fascinating story is that not long ago, less than a decade ago, he was top editor at Money Magazine, the once thick magazine that had such circulation you would see it in grocery aisles. It was a colossus for Time, Inc., the magazine corporation since the early 70s, and it is no longer, but he has successfully reinvented into what, your teacher of the year in 2022? Thanks
1: for uh, having me on, Robin, and reminding me how old I am.
0: No, I mean, this is this is amazing. Think about it. You're in Manhattan You're working in Rockefeller Center back when monthly or bi-monthly business magazines were all the rage. I mean, I worked for Smart Money at the turn of the century, which was a rival to Money Magazine, uh, the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones rival. And now to think that none of them really exist, but that you went back, you found your vision quest and went back and became a teacher. And that is your true calling. Now that just blew my mind. I had to have you on the show. (laughs)
1: Well, thanks for having me. You know, journalism was definitely a calling for a long time. But as the business really declined and I felt like I couldn't do the kind of work that I was really proud of, this other thing that had been gnawing sort of way back in the recesses of my brain for a long time sort of moved its way forward.
0: Well, I love to age myself by using this transitional device with the guests take me back to the turn of the century where you were one of the founding editors of cnnmoney.com yeah this is in the wake of the disastrous aol time warner merger because well so it wasn't
1: so what I like to tell people is that the AOL-Time Warner merger blew up $100 billion in shareholder value, but we got a good $30 million business out of it in CNN Money. So yes, yeah, so that was a, a, a merger of Money's website and CNNFN's website.
0: People forget uh, CNNFN with Myron Kandel. The synergies were great under Time Warner, this media colossus, and the magazine empire. I wanted to work at Fortune so badly at the turn of the century. I came to New York. And Justin Fox took me to the Judson Grill, and I just remember it was so breathless when you know AOL was coming together and the fat broadband pipes with CNN, and there was a CNN money show, and there was a CNN people show, and there was a drink cart even. I think it was the sunset, the swan song for the Time, Inc. drink cart. Where they would come around <laughs> and close, well, the and drink, prepare you. It's like
1: Mad Men. The drink card predates even my time at timing. That was more of a '70s and '80s creature. But it's uh, so,
0: it's but. so storied. And I, I remember saying, you know, I, I'm dreaming of writing for Fortune magazine. You get these luxurious. Somebody will send you to the Middle East to write about these, you know, hedge fund, oil, falconry people, and all expense paid trip and everything. But I pick the worst possible time to go into magazine journalism because the internet was about to slurp its milkshake.
1: Yeah, it was. It sort of happened in two in two gulps, if you will. Uh, You know, first there was 2000, but the magazine business kind of rebounded after that. Newspapers really started to decline because of the loss of classified ads, but the magazine business did well. Then it kind of fell off again during the financial crisis. Then it rebounded again briefly up till about 2012, and from there. That was that was the beginning of the end.
0: So uh, both and then the end came pretty fast. Yeah, both money and smart money, and some of the other personal. I mean, it, it's it's kind of old timey to think about it. A monthly personal finance magazine. I used to go. There was a Borders, I think, in the lobby of the Citicorp Tower, and I'd go at year end and pick out uh, mutual funds or you know the winners of last year and decide to. Right. And and it felt luxurious. There was something great about it. You could take it on a crosstown bus and read it. But that was just really, truly blown away by the Internet and the fact that we now consume all this stuff in kind of tweets and nanoseconds and hedge funds pay top dollar for execution in, in fractions of a second.
1: Right. And, it, it, you know, the business changed so much And the Internet. You know, the material that first came out on the Internet was good enough. Right. It didn't have to be as good or as polished as what came out in a magazine, but it was good enough. And then increasingly it got better and better and better. and you know, first the advertising migrated. The advertising actually migrated before the consumer did. Right. Uh, but it wasn't too long after that that the consumer migrated too.
0: You were the top editor at Money Magazine between 2008 and 2015. I remember people telling me that this was a cash cow for the parent company, that that and People Magazine in the grocery aisle, there were impulse purchases. It would have a tremendous pass through rate, kind of the retirement issues, the stocks for the next 10 year type issues. Am I wrong in that?
1: If you're Exaggerating a little bit. So, Time Inc. was a cash cow for Time Warner until eh, 2010, 2011. Mm. Uh, Money was never a huge cash cow. It was profitable, and at times, it was very profitable. Like, the margins were kind of crazy at times, but it was never, you know, in the scheme of things. I mean, people was not an 800 pound gorilla, it was a 2,800 pound gorilla. Sure. Uh, and so that was where. So it was people in Sports Illustrated and Time. It was the weeklies that really, really made the money, uh, and the monthlies contributed their own. And then the and then the women's magazines, which became a you know a later thing at timing. Those weren't the early things, but you know, InStyle and Real Simple they had their moments too, where they also became huge cash cows for a while. InStyle was rivaling Vogue and Pages, which was you know, wow unheard of.
0: Craig, walk me through 2008 and the financial crisis because this is Oof. a true hinge moment for all of us. That you know, you read about yeah. panics in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, but we were right there, effectively. I don't know if if Money Magazine had moved yet, but it was a neighbor to Lehman Brothers, as was my magazine, Business Week. <laughs> and, Correct. Yeah, you know, yeah, we was... were on
1: the other. Si- yeah, we were on the other side. So, and at that point, I think I was at Fortune for most of the financial crisis. Hmm. I, I had spent about a year in between stints at money at Fortune. And so I was trying to sort of move Fortune's journalism onto the web, which was a, a difficult thing to do because of the such deep reporting that went into those kinds of stories and the amount of time that was taken to to sort of curate them. But that financial crisis was crazy. I just remember working day after day after day. I remember getting a call from a buddy of mine who ran a hedge fund. A childhood friend. And I could hear the panic in his voice. And this was a guy who just, he was completely immune to that sort Mm. of thing. But it really shook things up. You know, it probably in some ways, changed some things for the better, at least what came out of that was for the better. But uh, going through it was pretty crazy.
0: You know, I say in my recollection covering it, and I covered Wall Street for Business Week, which was nominally a rival magazine, but we were all kind of going down the tubes quickly, and our parent company, McGraw-Hill, would cut us loose within a couple of years, was um, you thought that if there was one moment in covering Wall Street in markets where people would be justified in going out with pitchforks and torches in the street, it might be this with TARP and the various bailouts and the asymmetry of in- income inequality. And then coming out of that, especially how- income inequality only widened. I was surprised that much of the status quo persisted. I was surprised that you know the banks were recapitalized. They got to pay dividends back again. Uh, savings rates were suppressed. We had a long period of zero interest rate policy, and that sustained us into the next crisis, which was the pandemic.
1: I think that the Wall Street status quo may have changed, but the crisis changed the political status quo. I don't know that you have the the Tea Party. I don't know that you have MAGA necessarily, if not for the financial crisis. It represented a real sort of like, why are we paying attention to these institutions? Look at all they've done to us as opposed to for us. And I think it did change the body politic.
0: There was a shift in kind of the message that could go out to people who were wronged. I, I read somewhere that there was one Peculiar subprime mortgage that was subscribed to in the Midwest in the Rust Belt that could have been like the MAGA mortgage, you could have effectively called it the the grievance mortgage because so many people felt screwed by it.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it happened a lot. It happened a lot in black neighborhoods as well. I mean, Wells Fargo, in I think probably about 2012, ended up settling cases where they had been going into churches and pitching subprime mortgages Mm. uh, to people who actually would have qualified for regular mortgages. So a lot of that, I suppose the absolute kind of, I don't care, I can get away with it form of of Wall Street greed may have abated somewhat after the crisis.
0: So you persisted at Money Magazine, and that's always been a pretty tortured, I would think that at Time Inc., which again was People Magazine, Money, Fortune, some other publications that have fallen by the wayside, it was not a priority for the parent company, which the gem, the bauble, was kind of HBO and monetizing that to a lesser extent, CNN, why did they have such a problem? In that? And, and, and we'll leave it at this. Why did they have such a problem integrating online with print? I was always impressed that the there were fiefdoms, right, in different buildings that fortune yeah, writers didn't want to sully their hands on CNNMoney.com, which was a unified site. If from an outside perspective, you, it wasn't exactly where you'd go for money magazine content. It was a mega portal. I mean, you helped catapult it from number 10 to number one to audience size in its category. And something like that you think would be hugely valuable, but it's never really been a priority to the parent company. Even today, amid all of CNN's problems for the parent, which is now Warner Brothers Discovery, they seem to short shrift CNN.com.
1: Yeah. And even though CNN.com is still pretty profitable, but they want it to be ridiculously profitable. Mm. Uh, And so it doesn't get the kinds of resources that it really could use to do as good of a job as it possibly could. I think it wasn't just about writers not wanting to write for the internet. I mean, there's a whole, I remember when Time Inc. finally sort of bit the dust in 16 or 17, I forget exactly what year it was, when it was sold to Meredith. I did an interview with the Columbia Journalism Review and I talked about the innovator's uh, dilemma. Which, for your audience, is a great management book uh, written by a Harvard professor named Clay Christensen. Clay Christensen. And it talks about the problem that companies that were once innovative have when they are faced with new kinds of competition. And the new kind of competition doesn't do the job as well as the old one, but it does it good enough. And it starts to steal a little bit of market share. And then it gets a little bit better. And then it starts to steal a little more market share. And then it starts to steal a little more market share. Meanwhile, the behemoth is a behemoth. And it's hard to turn around an ocean liner. And that's what happened, not just to Time Inc., but to lots of magazine companies. And to newspaper companies as well, right? It, was, it wasn't just the writers being snooty. It was business saying, "Well, we can't put our content up on the internet for free. We have all this paid circulation. Well, then, okay, then we need a paid model for the internet. Well, nobody could figure out what that was, right? Uh, At least not for a long time, not until maybe the Times and- The Times and the Wall Street Journal. You
0: know, some of them backstopped by billionaires, which, you know, Fortune magazine, I believe, is owned by a wealthy Thai individual. That is correct. The money intellectual property has been remaindered. I mean, it's been sold down. I, I I think they sold the addresses to Kips, which I can't imagine that Kips survived money and smart money and some of the other players. I know.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, but you know, for years it was. It's not a family-owned business anymore. But for years and years it was, mm. and so they were able to, you know, okay, if we're not going to make any money this year, we're not going to make any money this year. You know, they were they were able to sort of deal with that a little better than than a. a You know, magazine that was part of a public company. So yeah, they did. They did in fact survive. And yeah, money's money's website now is owned by an advertising agency that operates out of Puerto Rico. Wow. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I I kid you not.
0: (laughs) Which is going to get into the caveat emptor element of what we're going to talk about. But if you're just joining us, my guest is Craig Matters. He is the former managing editor and executive editor of both Money and Fortune magazine, which were glorious. Magazines back in the day under Time, Inc., which was a a big unit of the former Time Warner, which has now been subsumed into Warner Brothers Discovery, which is having its own problems. But put that all aside. You went from 2015 to this vision quest. You're now a teacher at the Springfield Honors Academy in Massachusetts, which is a public magnet school that prepares undeserved students for success in competitive colleges. You went back and reinvented to become a teacher, and I want you to tell us, like, what are these moments, like on the train from New Jersey or Brooklyn, where you were like, "I, I don't want to be here anymore." The stress versus the the karmic enjoyment of doing this is just not worth it for me. And you thought back to what your teachers did for you.
1: Yeah, so it was a, it was a couple of things. I had always had in the back of my mind that someday I'd teach again. And in fact, interestingly enough, often my columns in Money Magazine would be telling my readers, careers have second acts. Like, you really want to be thinking about this. Probably what you're doing for most of your work life won't be what you do for all of it. So at some point, I just decided to take my own advice, I guess. But what really drove it was two things. One was both the economic, frankly, and the psychological benefits of running a magazine were declining. Every you know every year was cut the budget some more, mm. oh, that really talented, experienced person left, you can hire them with someone right out of school that you're going to pay $40,000 to. That got old. I had a conversation. The thing that crystallized it for me was a conversation I had with, with one of my bosses uh, who said to me, your job is to produce the MVP, the minimum viable product.
0: Mm.
1: And you know, while in technology, that means 1.0, but you know there's a 2.0 coming, right? That was not the case for what we were doing. I knew what he meant. And it was at that moment that I was like, okay, I got to start thinking about something else.
0: So could I ask you, did you live in Manhattan? Did you live in Brooklyn?
1: So I lived in Maplewood, New Jersey, and, uh, which was- well, you, so,
0: were co- you were coming into the port atrocity or Penn Station every day? <laughs> Penn
1: Station, yeah.
0: And so lots of times, like I had this too on the Metro North when I had to reconsider, you know, moving from New York to Virginia for family reasons, but lots of times to think about it. And, uh, you know, I had the the talking heads lyric going into my head, you know, how did I, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful, like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I signing up for sweatshop conditions? It's not what I originally signed up for 12 years prior to that. So did you have this conversation with your wife? Were you already an empty nester? Do you mind my asking?
1: Yeah, so my daughter had our daughter had already graduated college, and our son was in college, and so we were at a spot where we could see the end of the big obligations were near. Mm. I was pretty miserable. My wife certainly knew I was pretty miserable because I'm sure I did a reasonably good job of making her pretty miserable. <laughs> uh, Same here. Yeah, and so you know this notion that I would teach. Which kinda had been long running in the back of my head, well now I was fifty-three, okay, maybe now, cause if not now, when? And so, you know, we broached it and ran some numbers and timing, owing to the peculiarities of public company accounting, was all too happy to buy out a chunk of my contract and, and give me enough to be able to go back to school and sort of, you know, rebuild or start over.
0: Did you start an exploratory committee? I mean, you hear about all of these other, especially attorneys, you used to write for a publication that covered attorney life and culture pretty intimately. You got your big start there. And a lot of them seem to burn out or have a third life crisis and wanna go back and teach.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not not an unusual thing. Although I wish, frankly, I wish more later career professionals did do it because I think we actually add something to the classroom and to a school culture you know, there's some authenticity that we can speak about the the working world with mm. uh, that I think is important for for students to hear. Uh, but for me, it was, I had sort of long thought that I kind of owed my high school teachers uh, some payback. I grew up in a kind of working class, middle class section of Philadelphia, uh, very parochial in every sense of the word. I went to Catholic school, about a third of the 700 guys I graduated with even went to college. Mm. And they all pretty much stayed in Philadelphia, and I had a few teachers who pushed me to sort of get beyond that world. And I ended up, oddly enough, at, at Vassar College, which was in the middle of sort of a transition from, from women's uh, college to co-ed. And that kind of made a huge difference in, you know, how my life turned out. And so along, you know, always in the back of my mind was this idea of... Life would have been very different for me had I stayed in Philadelphia and, and, and I owed those teachers uh, who gave me the nudge. I, I owed them something.
0: It's pretty so maybe this it's pretty to cool to see it in a kind of a whiplashing uh, version on your CV. Uh, as uh, 2015 was the last year that you were managing editor of Money. 2015 to 2016, intern, Franklin County Tech School, Turner's Fall, <laughs> Massachusetts tell me how that happened
1: man you want to talk about a comeuppance uh, so one of the things you have to learn when you're going from being you know an, an editor and an executive to being a school teacher is no one has to listen to you <laughs> uh and and that was a real sort of change it was sort of like oh i don't no one cares about my resume or no one cares about the title that I used to hold. Like, this is a completely new game. I'm starting over, and I really have to earn the respect of these kids from the ground up. They, they don't know me from Adam, and nor do they care.
0: You know, it reminds uh, me of the Fix lyric 40 years ago, Saved by Zero. There's something wonderful <laughs> about kind of getting dressed down to nothing. <laughs>
1: it was really humbling. I remember there was a day where I had to play a movie. My mentor teacher at the time was out of the classroom, and I was fumbling with the technology. And like one of the kids looked at me and was like, do you even know what you're doing? And I was like, God, only my own children speak to me that way. No one else speaks to me that way. But I had to sort of learn how to sort of deal with that. Uh, yeah, it was, it was very humbling.
0: You immediately go to the U- UMass Amherst Graduate School of Education, Right, it must be in whiplashing format. You just up from New Jersey and go to Massachusetts, and so
1: not so much. We had a uh, we had a a cabin in Guilford, literally a log cabin in Guilford, Vermont. That was a vacation place. And so as I was sort of starting to look around, thinking about how was I going to make this move, uh, I actually went down to UMass and I, I, you know, talked to the head of the the dean of the School of Education at the time. She was the one who told me, oh. We have this program for second career folks. You know, it's an intensive program, but you finish your master's in you know fourteen months as opposed to two years, and you're teaching the whole time. And so, my wife and I made the decision: okay, this is what we'll do. I'll you know I'll live in the cabin for nine months, uh, kind of. There's almost something
0: Thoreauvian about it. Uh, Very
1: very much so, and I mean, it literally was a log cabin, uh, mostly heated (laughs) by a wood stove. <laughs> my neighbors were cows it was very different it was very different but it you know it did let me i needed to decompress i mean i was really the stress of trying to do well and do good uh in the magazine industry had really sort of you know taken its toll on me and so throwing myself into something else and then throwing myself into it in this you know incredibly bucolic environment was was Definitely good for the soul.
0: But Craig, definitely not one of those tropes we'd see in the notorious retire rich, retire early issues, which I couldn't stand. They decide every year, like <laughs> my editors would, I'd be like, oh, at least do something that's not so mercenary that shows a couple on the beach with the right contours and paintbrush. Oh, don't, or don't even get into that territory of open a and b or an omelet thing. I mean, this is definitely right-sizing your cost structure.
1: So that's the other thing that Teachings allowed me to do. It's allowed me to pay back for the sins that I committed as the editor of a service magazine, yes. But the idea that you're going to do a second thing and that you will have to right-size your costs, uh, that was part and parcel of, of advice that we gave. It's not many people who can go from highly successful career number one and, you know, make the same kind of money in career number two. That just doesn't generally happen. But it was a big, yeah, it was a big shift. Thank you, honey. It it was a big shift in in our standard of living for sure.
0: Full disclosure, do stay with us. Full disclosure podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and tell your auntie, is fulldradio.com. We are on NPR member station, WVTF, Radio IQ, NPR, celebrating 50 years on the air. You can catch us in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM. We're out west in Ventura County on KPPQ. Holler if you too would like us on your air. My DMs, alas, are always open. If you are just joining us, my guest is Craig Matters. He's a teacher and curriculum developer at Springfield Honors Academy in Massachusetts. He's joining us from his uh, humble abode in southeastern Vermont, where he and his wife help discarded farm animals. What you can't make up is that Craig Matters was at the very top of financial magazinedom uh, less than 10 years ago as managing editor of Money Magazine, the late great Money Magazine. And at the turn of the century, he helped sculpt CNN Money and now he is a teacher of the year type. Am I right in Springfield, Mass? Which, to be honest, I've uh, yeah, I wrote a book on organized crime. I, I I knew there was a Springfield mafia.
1: There is a Springfield mob. There's a pretty good podcast about it, actually.
0: Wow. Uh, how did you find Springfield? How did Springfield find you? So that year was a true immersive experience at UMass Amherst. I see that you stopped right. off in Newark along the way.
1: So so Maplewood, where I where I lived, and where you know, where we lived and where our kids grew up is only 20 minutes from Newark. And so as I was leaving the grad school program and thinking about, well, where do I really want to teach? I felt like as long as I was going to give up my old lifestyle, I didn't really want to go just teach in, you know, a well-off suburban school district someplace. That didn't really seem to be the point. And so I started interviewing for jobs in cities, and there are a couple of really good uh, charter networks in Newark uh where i interviewed and i ended up i ended up at one of them at a place called north star academy and i taught there for three years so while we so before you know i basically moved out of the cabin and back to our suburban home Uh, and then i taught in newark for three years and that was kind of where i really learned how to teach i had some i had an incredibly good mentor teacher there uh and charter schools though they certainly have their issues good ones like the one that I worked at really did have systems in place that allowed you to kind of learn the basics and develop your kind of your own voice as you went along. And so uh, having done that for three years, now we're really thinking, okay, do we want to stay here? And by this time, now the kids are gone and they're not coming back. And New Jersey property taxes are insane. Uh, And so we're thinking like, do we really want to keep doing this or do we want to do something else? But
0: time out, good prof. Why is it that, I again, going back to tropes, why is it that I always see, some, I, I see Edward James almost standing and delivering. I hear the late Coolio and that other thing that he was part of, I don't know, Michelle Pfeiffer, who else was in the right. thing. And I'm also thinking of that season of The Wire, right? These, these things have been made notorious in pop culture, kind of hard scrabble, the well-meaning teacher coming in and getting laughed at the first day. What was that first day, that first week like? So
1: in Newark, I was probably more afraid of the principal than I was the students. The principal was really tough. Uh, I mean, it was a great principal, a real force of nature. But by that point, I'd already taught for a year, uh, so I wasn't that you know I wasn't that kind of wigged out. What were you teaching uh, initially? Were you classroom. teaching?
0: Were you teaching English?
1: Yeah. So my first year there, I taught just English to tenth grade, and then at the end of the first year, because it turned out I had the guts to come back for the second year. And because I was doing an okay job, I said, look, I could develop a journalism and media literacy program for you. And they said, yeah, go ahead, do that. And so I did that m- my second and third years in Newark. And then at the point where we decided, you know what, we're ready to leave. We're ready to, to move to Vermont. Uh, you know, I just kind of took that curriculum, you know, with me to my new position.
0: I would say as a postscript, you let this pilot, this investigative journalism pilot uh, while, while you were at Newark for students with staff editors at ProPublica that you were focusing on the worst maintained public housing development.
1: Yeah, that was really interesting project. So what had happened was there was a ProPublica editor who's no longer there, but she had taught at North Star before she went. She did the opposite of me. She started out as a teacher uh, and then went into journalism. And so she was an editor at, uh, at ProPublica and was developing this program along with a few of her colleagues to sort of teach investigative journalism to students. So they came, you know, so we worked, I don't know, for about eh, pretty much a whole semester, maybe a little longer than that, on a project looking at uh, at Newark public housing. Uh, and so the kids learned how to do document searches and, you know, they had a sit down with the head of public housing in Newark. It was, uh, you know, it was a really good experience. They also knocked on doors in a Pretty tough project in Newark, so it was a it was a great learning experience for them and and for me, frankly.
0: So here's the deal: you show up at you know 2019. Effectively, you start at Springfield Honors Academy in Massachusetts. Did you have any idea? None of us did that. This uh, once in a century type cataclysm, the pandemic was coming down the pike. I mean, all of us remember where we were when the NBA canceled the season. My kids were on Zoom schooling. It it turns out, and we'll we'll talk about this. It's going to be a longitudinal huge hit to our children, their, their learning abilities, their socialization, their earnings. Take me back to 2019 and, and showing up in Springfield, Mass.
1: Right. So I ended up in Springfield because having taught in Newark for three years, I was kind of spoiled. I really wanted to stay in urban ed. I liked the stakes. I liked, uh, it turned out I think I was pretty good at it. I really felt like it was something really worthwhile to do. So basically, I was just applying for jobs in Springfield and another old uh, industrial city in, in that part of Massachusetts. Do you Holy mind my
0: asking what your wife was doing at the time in the tri-state area? I mean, what, what she would have to transition from?
1: Yeah. So she had a, a reasonably successful dog training business at that point. So she had been a journalist too, mm. uh, but never, I, never really had the, you know, the passion for it that I did. And so she stayed home with the kids for a little, for a few years and when she decided to go back to work, she said, I really want to do something with animals. And so she started out as an intern at the local zoo. Then she worked her way and got certified as a dog trainer. Then she went to Hunter College in New York, got her master's degree in animal behavior and conservation. Mm. And so she had to transition her business up here, which she's done, you know, she's done a good job of and, and has changed it some so that she doesn't just train animals anymore. She also trains other trainers. You know, all these animals that we have around here are other trainers love to come to work with them because they get bored working with just with just canines. So that was that was her transition was to basically take this business, which she had, you know, finally gotten to a spot that was in pretty good shape uh, and having to transition in again to Vermont
0: springfield honors academy between 2019 and 2022 when you won the inaugural teacher of the year award tell me everything that happened in that so not not only do you teach 10th grade what english and a two-year journalism and media literacy elective you said you want to make the students responsible consumers and creators of digital content of course in the wake of the 2016 election and russian interference and bots and uh, social media weighing on things, and who knows what how teenagers consume the news these days. I mean, back in the day, as I started the episode saying that the magazines were prime for me, I looked up to them, I inhaled it. There was prestige. You'd be in the dentist's office and you'd see Newsweek, and wow, right? Um, where are they getting this information right now?
1: Well, so, uh, you know, they're completely brand agnostic. Uh, for the most part. I mean, you'll find a few kids who are savvier than others who who sort of, you know, know the difference between CNN and MSNBC. But for the most part, they're brand agnostic. They get it from social media. uh, And they're not particularly skilled at figuring out what's real and what's not. So one of the things that we do, uh, both in my English curriculum and in my journalism curriculum, is kind of walk through how do you fact check a piece? Uh, how do you read laterally, meaning how do you check the credibility of a source by opening up other tabs and seeing what other people are saying about that source? Uh, how do you know when to how do you know when to be suspicious of something? What's it doing to you emotionally? Is it making you crazy? Hmm. Then probably you need to think about it. So all these kinds of lessons that adults could learn to use as well are part of the journalism curriculum. And then at the same time, I'm also teaching the, the journalism students, you know, how to be journalists, how to report, uh, how to fact check, how to treat a source with respect, how to how to respect someone's privacy. Who's not used to actually talking to reporters, how to deal with ethical issues that come up, uh, especially around children and teenagers. Right. With whom you might be discussing sensitive things. So there are lots of lessons uh, you know, that that are sort of traditional journalism in a way that can also, I don't expect very many of them, if any of them, to ever become journalists, but they will become influencers of one kind or another. They will become marketers. They will become scientists who have to publish their material. And I want them to sort of, A, know how to do it well, and B, know how to do it uh, responsibly.
0: You know, Craig, I talk with my middle schooler all the time as I drop him off at school in the mornings and I try to get him to listen to NPR to separate what they taught me in 10th grade as propaganda versus having a good casting a wide net enough to read a cross section of sources, not to just describe it to the op-ed section or to say, you know, Fox News told me this or I saw it on the New York Post. But free is the problem here. If you are portal driven and you're getting your news on an Apple News feed or whatever it is that's feeding it to you, Twitter or Instagram or other places or the Daily Mail, uh, to the eyes of a, and I'm not trying to sound paternalistic here or, or insulting, but to a a teenager who's probably not paying for a New York Times login or a Washington Post login or a, a New York Review of Books or whatever it is, you're going to take free. Free comes first, and there's something about it that it's it's nominally curated on Google News or Apple News, so you might take it at face value.
1: Indeed, and that's why sort of learning these tricks to sort of Be able to quickly distinguish uh, distinguish between fact and fiction, or fact and at least something you should be suspicious about, are so important. And also to understand that if something is really ringing your bells, uh, you should probably be suspicious of it. There's a motive behind that, and it's not necessarily to inform you. So those are some of the things, you know, some of the lessons we try to teach students. I I teach it as much in my tenth grade English class as I do in my journalism class, because I think it's something everybody should be exposed to.
0: Professor Matters, what happens when these students who end up inevitably loving you, they get down to brass tacks and say, uh, "I'd like to talk about college." There's a no shortage of consternation. I still have nightmares. I'm 25 years removed from college graduation, and the the sense of kind of doom, do or die, get into this school or else your life is over, it still haunts me. I mean. I don't mean to make this a therapy session, but I I have many unresolved issues from high school. It doesn't have to be like this, and this is a fresh conversation now in the wake of the Supreme Court striking down college affirmative action. A lot of people are rethinking. Well, do I want to go for the selective schools? There used to be things in Money Magazine, in Business Week, and other places that you could get a great state school or public type Ivy education. How do you even begin that conversation? How do you even start to crack that egg with a student who? trusts you, wants to be vulnerable with you.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's complicated. I mean, and so in our school, probably about two thirds of the students would be first gen. So, you know, most of them don't have parents to have that, that conversation with. So we're increasingly finding that we actually have to have the conversation both with the parents and with the kids. And I think our thinking has been, we've done an okay, but not a great job at that conversation. And we're actually ramping up more sort of college prep even at the even in freshman year not to get them ready for the SATs god forbid but just to get them sort of thinking about college and understanding what's out there a lot of students especially first gen students they know there's a Yale and they know there's a community college and they don't actually know that there's anything in between and in fact there are a lot of you know there are a lot of schools with a fair amount of money and a fair amount of prestige who are looking for Talented students, you know, from underrepresented groups, and will still be even after, uh, even after last week's decision.
0: Did you have to resist the urge to teach kind of rudimentary personal finance? A constant knock on high school, middle school education is that look, you, they make you a a rock star you know in my case you could take ap calculus ab bc you could take trig in middle school you'll never use that again in life i'm still i'm not bitter am i bitter maybe a little bitter but uh <laughs> talk about taxes how to do your taxes or how to dollar cost average could you imagine if you ha- if you're an 18 year old knowing that i could save $50 a week and dollar cost $50 a month and dollar cost average it into an s&p 500 fund I mean, in my experience as a markets person, going and explaining that for students of varying ages has kind of blown their minds, has made them want to defer gratification.
1: Yeah. So as it turns out, my second year there, there was a demand from the students for this kind of material. And so in my second year there, I just said, and it it was this pandemic year. So we were basically doing Zoom school and so i just said to the principal look i can you know i can do this uh and so i taught a financial literacy course and now we've actually incorporated i don't teach it anymore a math teacher teaches it we've actually incorporated that into the into the curriculum uh you know and it's proven to be pretty popular i mean kids do need to understand this stuff and in fact if they understand it before they start filling out their financial aid forms in their senior year of high school, if they're exposed to it a little sooner than that, they're going to be a little less panicked about that, about that process because they'll understand a little bit more about college loans and how they work. Uh, one of the things we actually have to overcome is the reticence to take on any debt. As students and their families hear debt, they immediately think, oh my God, this is something I'm never going to get out of. And they think it's life-changing but there's a pretty big difference obviously between taking on a hundred thousand dollars in debt to go to an undergraduate institution and taking on thirty thousand dollars in debt right but that's asking Uh, a lot
0: if a lot of these guys are first-gen college students and then there is you know you're you're i mean they might understand summer jobs they might understand i remember my contemporaries there were some that never had the parents that pulled them aside to say that there was one guy who worked at the Win Dixie grocery store in South Florida. Was a brilliant math student, a physics student. I'm not going to say his name. He got into Harvard, but his parents said you're responsible for your own payment. He ended up going to Florida State University. I don't think his, right. uh, you know, to go on an in-state kind of governor's scholarship thing. There was no shame in that, but certainly it would cleave between the privileged and the non-privileged. And I, uh, right, especially now the debt. The story of debt is in sharp relief with the up oh, the Supreme Court. Not only knocking yeah. down College Affirmative Action, but canceling the cancellation of student debt by the Biden administration. How do you even get into that conversation with people? I seem to. I see people now, my contemporaries in their mid-40s, that still have strained relationships with debt that are a function of decisions they made when they were 18 or 23.
1: Right, right. And so the conversation that you have to have is talking about what's manageable, what is a reasonable level. What is it you thinking you want to do after you get done? What are your options? You know What schools are giving you the best packages? So there are, you know, there are a lot of ways that you can sort of slice it, but you want to get across the idea. Look, the worst case scenario, and the one that we really try to avoid, the worst case scenario is the student who goes to a not such great school, takes on a fair amount of debt to do it, and leaves in 2 years. Mm. That's the person who's positioned the worst off of all. And so would we rather a student, you know, go to a better school that's going to make it much harder for him to drop out because they're going to have the kind of supports there that make it less likely that that's going to occur? Yeah. So it's not just, you know, it's not just the initial dollar sign and it's not just the initial debt level. It's, you know, what are you getting? What are you getting for that buck? Now that said for a lot of our students and you know 90% of the students just about not just under 90% of students in Springfield Public Schools are classified as low income. If they do get into good schools, they'll tend to end up graduating with very little debt. Good schools are pretty generous these days when it comes to satisfying the needs of, you know, of truly low income folks. So and that's another thing that we're trying to stress is like you do well here a lot of doors are going to be open to you, and they are not going to break you or, or break your folks.
0: Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Craig Matters. He was Teacher of the Year in 2022 at Springfield Honors Academy in Springfield, Massachusetts. This was just seven years removed from him being the top editor at Money Magazine, the late, great Money Magazine. I thought, incredible career U-turn. I had to have you on. In the few minutes we have left, I'd like to ask you about certain things, like if I were sitting next to you at a wedding or bar mitzvah, I love to say this, like a sushi chef might say, well, you never want to get sushi on a Sunday night because that's when we take delivery. That's the the farthest away from when we take delivery of the fish. What are kind of the parenthetical asides you'd share with me? It could be about SAT. It could be about motivation, the things you wish other people knew about the inside world of, of high school education and public education, especially for the disadvantaged.
1: I think that uh, one of the things that we're still wrestling with is student mental health after the pandemic. It affected students in really profound ways. And I think it affected low-income students in big cities where Zoom school tended to be the way of life for well over a year. It affected them really severely. And it's just like this year we could start to see them Improving some, but whenever, <laughs> I guess one thing I'd say to a parent is if if your school board ever talk, started talking about cutting counseling positions, tell them no. That the kids really do need that uh, need that help to sort of get through this difficult time.
0: It's not cliche to say that we are in a true mental health epidemic. I mean, the Surgeon General has chimed in on this. After all, it's you talk to parents, you can't find a counselor. There's a shortage of practitioners out there. Uh, the schools are complaining. A lot of this stuff is still, even the counseling is done over Zoom. And there's a deficit in that to say nothing of math skills and critical thinking skills and the standardized test scores that are trickling in.
1: Yeah, I, 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 that's all that's all quite true. And yet there's still pressure on districts about, well, how many counselors do you have? Like Those counselors are there for a reason. Not only do they help those individual students who are in need, they also help everybody else be able to learn if too many students are having too much difficulty uh sort of being in the classroom that does not create a great environment for everybody else so they not only help the students they're helping they, they help uh they help everyone so that's one thing i guess i would urge people to sort of think about when they think about the expense of uh of public school and then what's all this mental health stuff it's not stuff it's a real issue that that needs to be uh, that needs to be addressed
0: are we seeing the true sunsetting of the era of the sat which obviously has been pilloried because you can prepare for it and it cleaves very closely to how wealthy you are and the the cram sessions you could take after school and what your parents can pay
1: i think that uh, in some ways actually the the court's ruling you know striking down affirmative action may may hasten its demise because it is a no matter how hard you work it, there's no question it favors people who are well off, who, like you said, can afford all those extra tutoring sessions after school, as opposed to you know going to work their jobs that they need to work to help contribute to the welfare of the family. We do, we do SAT instruction at our school. And, and basically what we tell the kids is, look, if you do well in this, it's going to give you an edge over another candidate who looks just like you. Uh, in terms of resume and grades and extracurriculars. And so there's a reason to, to try to do, you know, well on this test. But I do think one of the ways colleges will probably kind of push back against the affirmative action ruling is to kind of do away with the, or at least make it more and more schools will make it optional and, and keep it that way, right? If it became optional during the pandemic, I think there's a pretty good chance that it'll, it'll stay optional. And you might see a few more big institutions like California doesn't even look at test scores anymore, right? You know, would it surprise me if, say, a state like North Carolina or Michigan uh, adopted the same policy with regard to its, you know, its flagship schools and its other schools? Eh, Probably not. I, I could see that, you know, as one way to kind of, you know, level that that playing field.
0: If you could go back in the couple of minutes we have left with you and and remember talking to people who would come in and profile companies and the business model and you know all this worshiping at the altar of Jack Welch and GE back in the day and Intel and Dell and the business models there's something definitely wrong with the business model of public schooling in the United States where you can go from a district with high property values and an embarrassment of riches to some that You know, frankly, here in Richmond, you could have absolutely sharp relief, the haves and the have-nots, the full legacy of segregation versus people in moneyed white districts with high property values who have practically private school caliber, public school education. What else in the United States is kind of pegged to that? That, you know, you talk about equal opportunity and equality of outcomes, but it can't be that way. I'm thinking it must be an especially sharp relief for you being in a in a rundown area where so many students are underprivileged and they don't come from college educated backgrounds or they'd be the first in their family to go to college. How would you critique it as the business journalist going back to your past life?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, if you sort of think about if, if the purpose is to create the most benefit for the society as a whole, it's not a very good system, right? Because it doesn't do that. I mean, it demonstrably doesn't do that. It benefits, uh, it benefits a small group of people who have, you know, fled the cities uh, and uh, have, you know, as you say, all manner of resources at their disposal and leaves a much larger group behind. Now, let's say Massachusetts does a better job of equalizing school funding than, than some other states. I can't say that the Springfield schools are are run, you know, on a shoestring, but they're certainly not run at the level that some of the well-off, you know, suburbs of Boston are and nor is there enough money to sort of address all the need because those students come with other needs, right? They don't have the same sets of networks that the students in, you know, Wellesley have they don't have the same uh parents you know that their parents aren't all PhDs uh and lawyers and professionals so they come with some other things the, a lot more of them are english language learners and that especially was a problem during the pandemic i mean we had students who largely were at home where english was not spoken very much they didn't you know they attended zoom school sporadically And then they came back and they were thrust back in, you know, a grade higher than when they left, having spoken not a whole lot of English for over a year. Okay, what are we doing to help them? Like, where are the resources to sort of recognize that that's an issue? And that if we don't address these, the disparity in input, the disparity in output is not going to help the society as a whole. But, you know, I sound more like a socialist there than a... Jack Wells, worshiping capitalist, but...
0: Well, you have a little uh, cabin in Vermont with various <laughs> goats, and like, I mean, it could, you, could do, you could be doing worse, but uh, hopefully you know Bernie Sanders. Craig Matters, I love your bio. Again, to remind people, in the span of less than seven years, you went from being the top editor at Money Magazine, the enormous uh, storied Money Magazine, to being Teacher of the Year in 2022 at Springfield Honors Academy in Springfield, Mass. It's a public magnet school that prepares... Underserved Students for Success in Competitive Colleges. Sir, uh, keep on keeping on, and you are welcome back anytime.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Full disclosure, reminder that if you are listening to us on the radio, note that while we often have to cut for broadcast time, the entirety of every interview we do is available on podcast, at NPR, Spotify, and on Apple. The link is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. Special thanks to Claire Morgan at Nauterly. Radio IQ, NPR, WPVM down in Asheville and KPPQ out in SoCal. Message me if you too would like to carry full disclosure on your air. We are on all social media channels that handle Full D Radio. And do stay tuned for a roster of big live event announcements at the University of Richmond kicking off this fall. And catch me every week on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.